Do keep your Bibles open at uh, Genesis chapter 22. Um, I'm John, I'm one of the members here, and um, I've passed Dav's stringent Are You Welsh Enough tests, and therefore um, have the privilege of opening God's Word and uh, looking at it with you tonight. Uh, this is our final uh, message in a series looking at the life of Abraham, and um, as we've looked at Abraham's life, it's been a restless one. Uh, he's been traveling around, moving from place to place, uh, throughout most of his life, waiting for God to fulfill the promises that God has made to him. But now, as we come to uh, the end of chapter 21, uh, we see Abraham finally at rest. And uh, that's why I wanted to read, to start our reading uh, in chapter 21, uh, because we, we see Abraham there at rest. He plants a tree, which is a sign of stability. If you plant a tree somewhere, it means you're going to be there for a while to enjoy it. And we're told Abram stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. He's an old man by now. Uh, he was old enough when Isaac, his son, was born. Uh, and some time has passed since then. So he's an old man, and he's probably expecting now to rest at this place, see out his days until God takes him uh, to his eternal rest. But God has other ideas. And sometime later, this message comes to Abraham. Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Now what do you think uh, Abraham thought when this message came to him? How do you think he felt? It must have been absolutely crushing for him, mustn't it? Take your son. God emphasizes how much Abraham loves his son. Your son, your only son, whom you love, take him and sacrifice him. I mean, Abraham had waited his whole life for God to give him this son. And now God's saying he has to take him and kill him. Abraham would have loved this son, wouldn't he? Do you think Abraham was the sort of father who um, barely knew what his children were up to, stuck his head in late at night, gave them a kiss goodnight, but hadn't seen them all day? Or do you think, having waited his whole life for a son, Abraham would have been involved in his life, thrilled by him, knowing what he was doing? I'm sure Abraham would have been really involved as a father, would have loved his son, and would have felt as revolted by this idea of having to take him and slaughter him as you or I would be if anybody suggested that we would do that to our children. But for Abraham, there was more than this as well, because Isaac, for Abraham, was the culmination of all his hopes and fears. His, his, his hopes and dreams, his whole life had been building up to God fulfilling this promise to give him his son. Earlier in his life, God had, said to, God had appeared to him, and Abraham had said, what will you give me, Lord? Because I have no child, I have no son, and Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. It's a great pain to Abraham as he went through his life. He became successful, uh, he became rich, but he didn't have a son, an heir. And then finally, as he got, became old, God fulfilled this promise. And now God is saying to him, take that son who you love and kill him. So as Abraham listens to what God says, he faces losing his son who he loves. He faces his hopes and dreams being ruined as well. And what does he think about God? He spent his whole life worshipping this God and following him. And he's found God at times to be puzzling, times hard to understand but always ultimately to be faithful and true to his promises. And has this God ever been like this, like the pagan gods around him, demanding human sacrifices? So what does Abram think of God 
as he asks him to do this thing? What do you think of God as you hear him telling Abraham to do this thing? On Mother's Day, what do you think God is doing asking this? Well, we'll come back to that objection later. But let's just think about Abraham. What does he do when God tells him to do this thing? Does he argue? We've seen previously with Abraham that he's quite capable of reasoning with God and arguing with him. But not here. Here, what does he do? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He doesn't let any time pass. He gets up and he obeys. I don't know if he, he heads off early in the morning before his own resolve leaves him or before he has to explain to his wife what he's doing. Um, but certainly he gets up early and he obeys. Why does he obey God in doing this thing? Well, as we've seen through Abraham's life, Abraham has had times when he's been obedient to God and trusted him and things have turned out well. And he's had times when he's disobeyed God and not trusted him and things have gone wrong for him. So even when God calls him to do something which is so puzzling and seems so contrary to Abraham's nature and contrary to God's nature, still Abraham knows by now that the wise thing to do is to trust God and obey him whatever he calls him to do. And that's a point for us to learn as well, isn't it? That we must always trust God and obey him whatever he calls us to do, however much we are puzzled by it. Well, that's why he obeyed, but you might still think, well, how did he obey? How could any father loving his son do this thing, take him up a mountain, face, take a big knife with him and some rope, and face him to do what he's called to do? Well, we don't get an answer to that question in this chapter. To get an answer to that question, we need to turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about this. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So, as um, Abraham is going with Isaac up the mountain and taking him to do this shocking thing, his reasoning is not, oh, God will never make me do this. God will never make me go through with this. His reasoning is that God can raise the dead. So even if God calls him to do this thing, to sacrifice his own son, he reasons that God can raise him from the dead. I think that's helpful for us as we think about uh, our lives and, and challenges that we might face. Now, sometimes God calls us to sacrifice things that we love, things that are precious to us. He'll never call us to make a human sacrifice. Let's just be clear about that as we see throughout, uh, as this chapter goes on. God doesn't want that, and he'll never want that, and has never wanted that. But God does call us from time to time to give up things that are precious to us. It might be a, a hobby that we pursue, or an art, or a, something good that we do. But it takes a lot of our time, a lot of our dedication, and a lot of our thought. And God just pokes us and prods us and says, that's taking time and thought that should be given to me. Give it up. It might be uh, in work, a project that, that, that looks really exciting that you want to get into. And yet as you look at it, you think, well, that's going to take me away from my family. That's going to take me away from home. It's going to put me in the way of temptation. It's an exciting project, but I, I can't follow it. 
So God might call us to give things up. Other times, we don't have the choice. God just takes things from us. So we might find that our our health fails just when we need to be strong to do something. We might find that our our business fails or our job goes. Our finances suffer. Uh, We've all been through these situations. How do we cope when this sort of thing happens, when God calls us to give things up or takes things from us that, that we come to rely on, that we love? Well, it's the same way. It's through belief in the resurrection. Abraham coped through belief in the resurrection, belief that whatever happened to him, God could and would bring Abraham back from the death. And for us, when we become believers, what do we do? We die to ourselves, and we go down, we die to ourselves, and we trust God to raise us up to new life. As we go through these difficult situations, or we give things up, what do we reason? Always that the God who loves us and cares for us, though he might take something from us, is doing it in order to lift us up to something new, to something good. Our God is a God who raises from the dead, and as we face difficult situations, we can trust him that he will take us down, but he'll lift us up as well. And as you go through your Christian life, you might find this as a pattern that's repeated over and over again, that you have a time that's fairly peaceful, a time of sitting under your tamarisk tree, as it were, and then something goes wrong, something's taken from you, something that you're reliant on, and you trust God that though he's taken you down, yet he will raise you up. And often God will raise us up then to greater dependence on him, greater hope, greater trust on him, in him, and greater ability to do things that he wants us to do and to achieve things for him. So that's how uh, Abraham, or part of the way that Abraham coped and was able to be a faithful father. Abraham is a faithful father, and he's faithful to God, first of all, and puts God in front even of his own family and his own hopes and dreams. And he's able to cope, despite God take, calling him to give up on his son who he loves and his hopes and dreams. Well, let's look at Isaac as well. We've seen Abraham, the faithful father. What about Isaac's role in all of this? Isaac's just starting to come into the picture now. And um, we see a lot, don't we, of Abraham in Genesis. And we see a lot of Jacob, not so much of Isaac. But he has a role to play here. Now, one of the questions that I was asking myself as I was reading this passage is, how old is Isaac here? How old is he? It doesn't say. There are some clues. First of all, he's climbing a very high mountain. So he must be old enough to be able to do that, maybe eight, nine years old. Um, He's also able to reason and understand about sacrifices. So in um, verse verse 6, isn't it, that Isaac speaks and asks, his 6 and 7, he asks his father, the fire and wood are here, but where's the lamp, the burnt offering? So he's old enough to, to climb a mountain, old enough to reason like that. Um, therefore old enough to resist as well. Uh, I've got a son who's eight and a son who's nine. If they don't want to do something that they're told to do, they're quite capable of resisting quite firmly. But there's no resistance here from Isaac at all. You notice that he is obedient to Abraham, even to allowing him to bind him and lay him on an altar and lift up a knife. There's an obedience here about Isaac, which is, which is lovely. And there's much that's, um, that, that we see about Isaac, which is much like Jesus, isn't it? As we think of, if we look at Isaac, we can see so many similarities here with our Lord Jesus. He goes up a hill, 
He's silent. He doesn't argue. Just as Jesus is described as a sheep before his shearers was dumb, so he didn't open his mouth. He's the sacrifice that God has demanded. There's much here of similarities between Isaac, the obedient son, and Jesus, the obedient son. But there's one big difference. One big difference. And the big difference is that as uh, Abraham lifts up the knife, willing to do this thing that God has called him to do, a voice calls from heaven and says, Stop! And Isaac is saved. And Abraham is stopped. Our Lord Jesus went up a mountain. Our Lord Jesus was silent. He didn't resist. Our Lord Jesus was not strapped to an altar, but nailed to a cross. And as he called out to heaven, did a voice come from heaven and say, Stop? No, heaven was silent to him. And our Lord Jesus went through that sacrifice on a cross so that Isaac wouldn't have to. A voice came from heaven and said, stop. And Isaac was released. But no voice came from heaven for our Lord Jesus. Now, as we think about the whole question of sacrifice, that that raises some questions in our mind, doesn't it? Because in our culture, the idea of altars and sacrifice and all that sort of thing is quite alien to most of us, I'd have thought. There are not altars um, all over the place, even those which we have in in our um, established churches are not really altars in the sense of having a sacrifice performed on them. So it's a strange idea for us. Of course, if you go elsewhere in the world, this whole uh, idea of sacrifice is um, much more prevalent. So in, uh, parts of, in uh, India, in parts of Africa, you'll see altars and offerings made to gods. But in our culture, that's not very familiar to us, is it? And the reason that people want to sacrifice and make offerings to gods is that there's a sense within them and within many of us that something's wrong, that there's someone or somebody, something out there that's in charge of the universe and that's not happy with us. And that's a sense that's right. A sense as well that we need to do something to appease that God or those gods that are not happy with us. And so we have this desire for sacrifice. That exists in many cultures. It's not so familiar in our culture. But in our culture, we still have this sense that there's somebody or something out there who's not happy with us. And this sense of guilt, a guilt that needs to be dealt with, and we don't know how to deal with it. And here, in the person of Jesus, the obedient son, we have the answer to how we deal with that guilt. How do we deal with it? How do we deal with that feeling of guilt? How do we deal with that feeling of alienation from God? Well, Abraham would have dealt with it time and again by sacrifices, by calling on the name of God. They understood the idea of sacrifice. But God said to him here, it's not your son that I want you to sacrifice. Though, Even if you feel guilty, even if you feel alienated from me, there's a greater sacrifice. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Verse 14. Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. We need God to provide somebody to provide a sacrifice. Those pagan religions have at least got some of it right, that we are alienated from God. We don't know him, and we do have a guilt as a result. What they get wrong is just how deep that guilt is and how far from God we are and what it takes to make us right with God.
And the Bible teaches us that what's needed is somebody to represent us. Not just an ordinary son, not an ordinary person, certainly not an animal. But somebody to represent us who is completely God, who's completely divine, who's infinite to take on the level of our sin, but also who's a man who can represent us. It's an obedient son. And Isaac here is not the one, but he's a shadow, a type of the one who's to be sent. And the one who's to come is our Lord Jesus. Now, one of the questions that you might have been asking as you're looking at this passage is, how dare God? What's God doing here? What is he doing here telling Abraham to do this thing? To take his son up a mountain, nail it, put him on, on an altar and kill him. What, what's, he, what's he doing here? I think this is one of these chapters that those people who hate God and, 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 and hate our faith pick on and say, what's your God like doing this sort of thing? And yet we know that the God that we love and serve, and Abraham knew that the God that he loved and served is a good God and a kind God. And as he does this thing, what he's doing is he's showing and teaching Abraham and generations to come after him that a sacrifice is needed and that it's him, God himself, who will provide that sacrifice and will provide that way for people to deal with their guilt and get right with God. And of course, the key answer to that question is it wasn't Abraham who had to sacrifice his son. It wasn't any of us who have to sacrifice people. Only one sacrifice was given. And who gave that sacrifice? It was God himself. And that statement, that son that we have in verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, is in itself echoes of how God speaks about his son. This is my son who I love. Listen to him, God says. Now, we, we asked earlier, didn't we, how we would cope. How do we cope? when things are taken from us? How do we cope when we have to sacrifice? And we looked at how we can cope through faith in the resurrection, the fact that God will restore all things, bring us back to life, and bring us to a country and a place where everything is right and everything is made right. There's another way that we can cope as well, and there's, 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 there's hints to it in this, these verses as well, and that's the fact that we have a God who loves us enough to give us his Son, and there's a wonderful verse in Romans which brings out this logic for us. And it's chapter 8, verse 32. It says, As he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Abraham's son was spared, but God's son was not spared. And it says, As he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We can trust God. We can trust God because he's given us his son. So whatever we're going through and whatever difficulties we're facing, we can trust him that he won't take us through things that are too much for us. He won't deny us what we need to get through life and that we can trust him to take us safely to eternity. Uh, a few months ago, um, Ros and I went to see a film, a good film, uh, called Sully. Looking around for nods of anybody who's seen it. Not many nods. Okay. Yes, good. Okay. Sully tells the story of the miracle on the Hudson River. Uh, 2009, uh, an airplane took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York. Uh, 
as it took off, a massive coincidence happened. As all the engines got struck by birds, they went through a huge flock of birds, all the engines were knocked out, and the plane was disabled. They tried to turn around to go back to that airport or another airport around New York City, and they realized they weren't going to make it. So Sully is the captain, and he landed his plane on the Hudson River between Manhattan and Brooklyn in New York. I don't know if any of you remember that story. It was described as the miracle on the Hudson because of the way the plane was landed safely. But the film shows you that even after he's landed the plane, there's still danger because all the passengers and the plane are floating on the Hudson. And planes, I don't know if you know this, planes are made to fly, not float. And so, as the... As soon as they landed, the plane starts filling with water. And it's February in New York. The water's just above freezing. And so the pilot has to get everybody off the, off the plane. So he gives orders. Action is taken quickly. People jump out. Everybody pretty much follows his orders. Why do they do that? They do that because he's the captain that's just landed them safely on the river. And having landed them safely on the river, they know that they can trust him to do what comes next. So they have to jump off these sort of bouncy castle things, which look quite fun, but probably not if you're jumping into a freezing cold river. They have to sit in rafts, they have to wait their turn, and they take his direction because they trust him that having brought them that safely that far, he'll take them home. Well, you can see the application, can't you? We can trust our Savior. He's brought us safely this far. He's taken us through. uh, He's gone through death himself so that we can have our sins forgiven, peace with God, and hope. So whatever he takes us through in life, whatever circumstances he might be throwing at you tonight, as you're sat here, and as you're half thinking about those circumstances, whatever it is that he's taking you through, you know, and let me tell you, that you can trust him to take you through. You can trust him that he's good, and he'll take you through. So, we've looked at a faithful father, Abraham, who trusted God, through this difficult thing, through faith in the resurrection. We've looked at the obedient son who points us to the obedient son, Jesus, who died on the cross as the sacrifice for our sin. Finally, in these verses, then, we see the faithful father. Let me just turn myself back to Genesis chapter 20. So Abraham has been faithful. He's shown himself willing to obey God. And now God speaks to him. And this is what God says. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham. This is verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. So having gone through this thing and shown uh, Abraham, showing himself to be faithful to God, now God speaks. And God declares these great promises to Abraham. There's nothing new in these promises. All of these promises have been given to Abraham before, during his life. But now he restates them in one glorious bringing together of all the promises that God has given to him. And God now, it's like a seal on it and and God's ability to trust Abraham as well, to be faithful. Well, what are the things that God promises to Abraham here? 
He promises a blessing. He promises to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So the first thing he promises is a great population, a great people. This is Abraham, who currently has one wife and two sons, and that's it. He promises that his descendants will take the land, take possession of the cities, their enemies. And he promises that through Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because of Abraham's obedience. Just a side note there. Do you see how our obedience brings blessing? Obedience brings blessing. That's something that if you've been coming along regularly over the last few months, you'll have seen time and time again in Abraham's life how obedience brings blessing. Disobedience loses blessing. Sometimes we can tend to think that our private obedience to God, it was in that song, wasn't it? Who will, how will anybody know if I don't believe, if I stop believing in private? But our private obedience to God, the obedience that we give to God even when nobody else sees it, is vitally important. Because when there's obedience, then God can bring blessing. And when there's disobedience, that blessing doesn't come. So if you're tempted to, to disobey God, don't. You'll be losing blessing. But let's look at the blessing that uh, God uh, promises to Abraham here. He promises him a people, a land, and a blessing to all nations. And the, the story of the Old Testament is really the story of God fulfilling that promise to uh, Abraham as he gives him a great people, the, the Israelite people. He gives, him, gives them a land in which to live. And then he gives them, they're there to be a blessing to all nations. That's never fulfilled fully, but then God sends an offspring, a son, the son that we've already looked at, Jesus, who's sent from Abraham's people to be a blessing to all nations. And we are part of that blessing. We're, we're people who, if we love God and have had our sins forgiven, then we enjoy that blessing and the things that we've looked at already of having our sins forgiven, having peace with God, a hope of eternal life that God will lift us up one day. And we're part of that blessing as well in that we can be a blessing to the whole earth. God's spreading that good news. At one time it was just with Abraham. It spread to his people and that part of the world. But isn't it wonderful how God has spread that throughout the whole world and throughout all the world. Those parts of the world where they have sacrifices and altars. These parts of the world like ours where we don't know what to do with our guilt. Throughout the world, God is spreading that blessing and that good news of Jesus who's a saviour to all nations. You have that blessing. You're a part of that blessing if you trust Jesus. And you can spread that blessing as well. You can spread that through obedience to God and living his way, through loving others, as we heard about this morning, and through telling others about this great blessing as well. And telling others that there is a way for their sin to be forgiven, for their guilt to be assuaged, for them to have a hope beyond death. God is a good God. Abraham has seen that throughout his life, that God can be trusted. If you've been a believer for any period of time, you've seen through your life that God can be trusted. That being part of God's people is far, far better than being outside of God's people. That's a great blessing for us. And that's a blessing that we have a role in spreading throughout the world as we're part of what God's doing. So let's go out tonight encouraged. Let's go out determined to be faithful to trust God as Abraham did, to obey as Isaac did, and to be rejoicing that we're part of that great blessing that he's spreading throughout the world in Jesus. Let's pray. (coughs) 
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, the hope that we have of eternal life through Jesus. We do pray that as we go out that you would enable us to be obedient, that you'd enable us to trust you, that we would rejoice in what you've done for us through Jesus and the hope of eternal life that we have through him, and that we would go out this week to be a blessing to others as, as, as we rejoice in what you've done for us. Amen.